Everybody, welcome to Open Mic with me, Mike Creed. On the show today, Alan Lim. Uh, Alan Lim and I go pretty far back, maybe let's say 2005, 2006. Uh, Vodders brought him in for the Tiacraft Slipstream Garmin. Uh, originally, he was just kind of a, a coach, but he kind of turned out to be a lot of a director, you know. He, did a lot of things uh, for the riders, and we saw him a lot that year. Uh, homeboy travels. Um, also tagged in the podcast is Bijou. Uh, Bijou, uh, as everybody will know, is Alan's partner with the the feed zone and all these uh, different things. So uh, I kind of feel like Bijou like snuck his way in on the podcast, you know, like he honed it, but luckily he's a really interesting guy and he pulled it off. So, um, what have I been up to? I haven't talked to you guys in a while. I know I do that Tuesday thing, the Tuesday podcast. What do you guys think of the Tuesday podcast? I'm not sold on it yet. Uh, I, I, I can't tell if it's entertaining or annoying, which that's the point where all the really clever people on Twitter say annoying and you're like oh wow you're ridiculously uh, smart but yeah whatever um beyond that guys uh, I want to point out that Carl Cyclist is still sponsoring the podcast I'm looking outside it's snowing you guys need cold weather gear. Go to Carl Cyclist. Get your cold weather gear. You guys gonna buy it anyway? Go to Carl Cyclist. They have everything. They have Castelli, Asos, uh, you know those other brands that are out there. They have them. Really good stuff. Keep you warm. Keep you out there on the bike. Um, you know, don't be like Verbruggen and get caught behind the eight ball and then just be the whipping boy of winter. That fucking guy, he's, every day there's some, something that, that you know, <laughs> he's in the news. I, I tell you a slight annoyance that I had is, uh, if you guys have followed the podcast at all, uh, Vodders was my first uh, guest. And while I was there, we had this nice long talk, and he actually had me turn off the microphone for a while as we, uh, just so he could play the Verbruggen voice message. And I thought it was really hilarious. And today I'd look at cycling news. Boom, there's a. He gave it to him anyway. And. Uh, I could have broke that, JV. That could have been me, man. Huh? And then I'd be on top of Media Mountain looking down upon everybody. You know, and, and everybody could, you know, make uh, false idols of me. And. Uh, I don't know if it works that way. Didn't do a lot of church. Um, beyond that, guys, kind of, kind of freaking out that I'm actually retired. I, I, I'm really retired now. Do you understand what this means? I have not ridden my road bike since Jeremy Powers' Grand Fondo. Here's a fact: I left my road bike at Jeremy Powers' house. I didn't even take it home with me. I'm kind of wondering what kind of mental state I was at to do that. There's a big part of me that wants to go out and, uh, and train again and uh, 
do it. But the important thing is to remember where I was at when I retired, not where I wanted to be, you know? So I didn't retire for no reason. Uh, beyond that, guys, hiring new riders. Uh, short little press release went out a little while ago. Everybody got to see that, hopefully, on Cycling News. We still got a couple of the riders in the mix, maybe bring them on. It's difficult. It's difficult because you get resumes from a lot of people, a lot of people you like, a lot of people are friends, and you have to say no. And uh, I don't like it. Uh, I took this job so I can help guys get better, you know, maybe uh, through training advice or tactics or a good environment. Like, I wanted to provide that. I, I mean, I still want to provide that. And then. A lot of guys, you had to like go off the team or whatever, and um, I had one of the riders kind of bitching at me on Twitter, and I, I understand, you know, like, I don't blame him for being mad at me. I, I get it a lot, but uh, there's a part of me that uh, really cringes. I really feel bad for the guys that I had to uh, let go. But hey, I was tasked with uh, with making a different team and. I think those guys have the capability to come back to the team, a, a large amount of them, and I hope that they come back to the team. Uh, I think they're really great guys, but uh, it just couldn't work out this year. So, um, With that lovely bit of um, self-apology, I'm going to bring you Alan Lim. Hey, gang, come on. Look, it just because we're losing doesn't mean it's all over. Cut the crap, Morty. I mean, the Mohawks have beaten us the last 12 years. They're going to beat us again. That's just the attitude we don't need. Sure. Mohawk has beaten us 12 years in a row. Sure, they're terrific athletes. They've got the best equipment that money can buy. Hell, every team they're sending over here has their own personal masseuse. Not masseur, masseuse. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Do you know that every Mohawk competitor has an electrocardiogram, blood and urine tests every 48 hours to see if there's any change in his physical condition? Do you know that they use the most sophisticated training methods from the Soviet Union, East and West Germany, and the newest Olympic power, Trinidad Tobago? But it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I tell you, it just doesn't matter. 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 Even if we win, if we win, ha! Even if we win, even if we play so far over our heads that our noses bleed for a week to ten days, even if God in heaven above comes down and points his hand at our side of the field, even if every man, woman, and child held hands together and prayed for us to win, it just wouldn't matter because all the really good-looking girls would still go out with the guys from Mohawk because they got all the money. <laughs>
How's it been going? The shows and everything. Um, they've been going. They're tricky. Like I, I like I, I I like doing it. Yeah. But I found that um, like once I've done the podcast, like I, I just walk away from it. Like I'll edit the opener and then the ending. Yeah. And then. You you forget about the conversation. Like I can't hear my own voice. So I don't like really. really yeah, listen to you don't it. want to re-listen to it. Oh. Yeah, I hate that too. Right? It's anything with like video, I can't watch myself. I don't really like listening to myself. No. No. Do, have you, you listened hits? to the podcast yet? No, I haven't. Are you selling subscriptions? No, they're free. So are you just using this as a way to uh, increase your own kind of brand and? I mean, I might be going a little far. I just think that, um, like, I have a lot of friends in cycling that you think are more interesting than um, than the the perception. And uh, so it's just about storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's about storytelling, and I think it's just like this weird. I, I I totally see me like getting to the point where I've done like a year of them. I get to like number fifty two, and I completely quit. Yeah. Like, I get bored with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I sold, like, a couple of sponsorships. Before, yeah. And, I, I, dude, I have no idea where I'm going with it. That's yeah. the thing. Like, yeah. I just, it's, it's, uh, it's okay. I think that, um, I don't want to speak for people, but I think people appreciate just a conversation, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of which, where the fuck are you at, man? Like, How's the scratch thing going? It's going pretty well, you know. I mean, it's steady. It's, I, I think, secure. And it's changed a lot for me. It went from being about, like, kind of exploring my own ego and vanity to start something. How did you do that? Like, what do you mean? You know, whenever you start a project, like, you don't, you think about what you want to do, right? Mm. And that's the kind of the vanity and ego which motivates you. Because, like, I was trying to set up and, and start my life literally from scratch again. But now that... I've got employees and I'm responsible for people and this thing is its own entity, it feels much more like taking care of a child and being responsible for people. Right. And that is a lot scarier and a lot a lot more motivating than anything I've done in the past. How is it different than when you were like directing or coaching? Um, it was different because I wasn't financially responsible for people. I was maybe you know, responsible for their training or their well-being, but that was also my job, and I wasn't responsible necessarily for whether or not they had a paycheck, whether or not they could take care of their families, whether or not there was security. Sure. There. Right. Oh, look who it is. Oh, hey, what's up, buddy? That's the other guy in Scratch. Hi. Yes, he's you, Thomas. You guys on already? Yeah, yeah. What? So. Thank you. We're just having a conversation, Beige, about life, about scrap, starting things, about life. Yeah. Did I say life already? It's all about life. Beige, I heard that you haven't listened to one podcast yet. That's a lie. Who told you this? Uh, well, I don't know. I haven't oh, listened. I, I was speaking for myself. Sorry, Mike. Lies and rumors. Yeah. Fabrications. We have so much. But it's true, yes. <laughs> yes, I have not listened to. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to work the pod machine. It's a phone. Your phone. <laughs> Where does one go to get these? Yeah, do you know what iTunes is? I don't understand what you're saying right now. <laughs> so you go to the iTunes. Yeah, and you just put in open mic. Open mic. And boom, it's there. That's it. What? All right, we'll do that. We'll That's do too that. simple. 
It's a special kind of audience that uh, is willing to listen to like an hour of audio. Well, Beach and I have been really busy this year. We've been making a lot of burritos, getting on a lot of planes, traveling yeah, all over the country. Yeah, you guys are in Or, no, Chattanooga. Chattanooga. The Chattanooga, Chattanooga. Chattanooga's a lovely place. It's though. really, it's really amazing. I think that a lot of people... Hey, you know, I travel too. I went to Chattanooga earlier this year. Don't act like you guys are the first fucking people in this room to go no, to No, I'm just saying, like, for anybody looking to start a life over, maybe go reinvent themselves, yeah. find a place to settle down, find, you know, uh, Chattanooga's awesome. There's tons of opportunities. Cost of living is low. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's so cheap there. It's ridiculously cheap. And they're like, there's tons of opportunities for somebody in our space, recycling. Out there. I, uh, it's probably one of the most progressive cities that I've been to in America over the last, you know, five years of travel. Yeah. And, and maybe that's because you don't expect to go to the South yeah. and have people, you know, wearing skinny jeans and riding fixies. Sure. This is true. Yeah. You know what's even cheaper than Chattanooga is Knoxville. Oh, really? In Knoxville, we got, like, a really Smoking great mountains. music scene. And I was looking at housing there for a while. Yeah. And you could get, like, a 3-2 in the Smoky Mountains what? for, like, I mean, you could probably put it on your credit card. Yeah. Oh, man. And, yeah. It, and it's probably it's probably the best riding in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. The Smoky Mountains, and there's, like, Blackberry Farm. Oh, yeah, there. that's where Blackberry Farms is. Yeah, which is an amazing farm, amazing food. Like, yeah. the food culture... Uh, there is probably one of the best in the country. <coughs> San Beal, Blackberry Farms, check it out. Nice. All right. Um, I won't, but I'll pretend like I will. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Somebody will. It's a great place. So you were telling me how, before this guy rudely interrupted, just uh, how different it was from coaching to now filling responsibility with Scratch. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of similarities in trying to inspire people and trying to get people to believe and. A similar cause. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. Is, yeah, but now you're trying to make money off your idea. You're not like. Yeah, we're trying to make money off of it for sure, and and with that comes the ability to take care of people, you know, and yeah. I think the ability to um, give back a bit and have a, a a different place in your community. Um, for me, it was a sense of well, how do we how do we do good in the world, and you know, whether you believe in capitalism or you don't believe in capitalism, this is the society we live in, and. You know, to be successful in that, at least in this country, means that you have the ability to hopefully do better things. Um, at least that's the ideal, but then there's the day-to-day -day fact that you're also responsible to your employees and the people who are working for you, and that yeah. you know, you're not just taking care of them, but you're taking care of them and their families as well. And for me, that feels like a much bigger responsibility than, than, than coaching. Sure. Um, I've noticed just from the directing a little bit that uh, I've... I guess I surprised myself with how much I've had to distance myself from the riders. Because before I always thought like, oh, you know, like I'm one of the riders. Yeah. But then you kind of see you're going to have to make some hard decisions that riders aren't going to like. That's right. So you have to build this very, like, is that the same with running Scratch? Like, you could, you're, you're talking about your employees' families and stuff, but do you also have to create this distance? So You, you do. You, you have to, I think... There's the realization that the buck has to stop somewhere eventually with a decision um, that, you know, we have so many choices available to us. And at the end of the day, somebody has to make those choices. And some of them are going to be really good for some people. Some of them are not going to be good for other people. And you just try to do your, your best, you know. Um, the other side of it is that, you know, I think that the expectations are very high within Scratch for the commitment that people give and that some people... Um, just aren't going to be able to give that level of commitment or, or feel that passionately about something 
you know, that there's this kind of notion that some people just show up for, for a job. Sure. Um, and at least right now, we're lucky enough that it can be more about that, that we can hire people not necessarily because of, um, you know, the resume, but because of their spirit. And for me, that's kind of an intangible. And if someone doesn't have the spirit, you know, as much as you want to take care of or help them, you know, you want to give that opportunity to someone else, right? And that's, I think, the same thing in professional cycling. If you don't cut it, you don't cut it. And that's always the hard reality, right? Yeah. yeah. How, did, how did you two hook up? What was the, the meeting here? Uh, that was a couple of years ago, back when I was with Garmin, and uh, Bijou has been friends with JV forever, and uh, you were catering that event. Yeah. Um, and... I just ended up hanging out with Bijou all night back in the kitchen talking about food, talking about life, and... This shit talking, JV. <laughs> yeah, normal. Yeah, right, just normal. Right, right. Normal stuff, right? <laughs> uh, we, uh, you know, we both have a huge fondness and love for food and cooking and eating, so it was easy conversation. And, you know, JV also, you know, he's a huge food and yeah, wine yeah. guy, so we all love to sit around and geek out about food. And it, um, that's how we met, but it was through, it was one of the dinner parties I was doing there years ago. And uh, we just kind of stayed friends ever since. But, but I think the interesting thing about Beach and I is that although we share this real uh, common love for food and for cycling, we have actually a very similar immigration story. And we have a very similar perspective, you know, cross-culturally in, in terms of always being stuck between different What's cultures. What's the immigration story? Well, oddly enough, yeah. interesting that you should mention. So I first came to the States when I was three. Picked up a little bit of English, went back to India when I was six, and came back again when I was ten. And for the longest time, like my whole family's here at the, you know, I'm ten years old, I've got four brothers, my sister, my parents, but I was the only one who spoke fluent English. And oh. I was ten years old. So I was the spokesperson for the family. For the entire family, whether that meant, you know, dealing with some rando walking up to the door. And we lived over in the North Highlands, you know, way before it was cool, over at thirtieth and Lowell in Denver. And I remember getting into accidents back then. People would just like ram your car and try to start a fight with you. And they're like, here's my dad. Here's a brown dude with like a car full of kids and some guys who want to like come and pick a fight. And we're like, oh, really? yeah, I mean, that's happened. So I was always the point person that had to like, here, you know, take care of make sense of what was happening and translate it back. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, go when we go to restaurants or go to grocery stores or anything like that. So, you know, that was kind of where it started kind of defining. How did you pick up English? I was here for three years when I was little. Okay. So I was here between three and six. So I was already fluent in American English. Then I went back and learned the local languages, and then I came back. Okay. And uh, so Alan, similarly, he was the one. He was the chosen one in his family, purely because he spoke English. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting. I'm Chinese. I was born in the Philippines. We immigrated to the United States. Uh, my parents naturalized, became citizens here as well. And, you know, it's interesting what you think about when you're a kid, when you're going through hard times, or even as an adult when you're going through hard times. And what my parents would always say to me that made me feel that everything was going to work out was that, you know, essentially, hey, everything's going to be okay. You speak better English than us, right? You speak English. Like, yeah. You have nothing to worry about. And my whole life, you know, in these moments where things have been really hard or you think that you're, 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 you're not going to make it, I think to myself, it's going to be okay. I speak English, you know? <laughs> um, and that's a powerful notion. And, and, and as an immigrant to the United States, I think that personifies the American dream. It's like, you know, I, you know, may not have any other skill in the world, but well, I can communicate. Yeah, I can communicate. I can speak English, and it's it's all going to be okay. 
Um, but I think that it was kind of hard coming in as an immigrant being different. I remember being stuck in a long line at McDonald's with my dad when we were little kids and you know, some big burly dude comes and cuts in front of us and he just starts yelling, you know, like, you can't cut, you know, I'm an American citizen, you can't cut. And it's in this bad Chinese accent and I felt so embarrassed at the time, but now as an adult, I think about how important it was for him to be a citizen. Right? And, and for me, it's been kind of a transformation of, you know, accepting my Chinese culture, but also at the same time being really proud of being a U.S. citizen. Yeah. And that's something that I think that uh, Bijou and I share and talk about a lot that people ne don't necessarily see on the outside in the cycling community. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Agree. That last part. <laughs> yeah. And you feel like that's almost probably that same attitude is what helped you start these different projects, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's essentially the drive behind behind Scratch, but it was also kind of the drive behind uh, so much of what I've done. The difference being that, you know, I think in, in the Chinese immigrant mentality or culture, it's about this drive to gain security first. Like, yeah. you're not really there to uh, fulfill your own passion or dream. The dream is security. So, you know, it doesn't, you know, so you, you, you get driven to do things like be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a professional, be someone or something that has a skill set that is indispensable. For me, I was just interested in riding bikes all the time, yeah. but I was also pulled by, you know, loving the bicycle. So in my mind, it translated to, well, I just need to be the best at that, sure. right? And it will all work out. And that was the only way that my parents could kind of maybe accept that I wasn't just kind of running around the country going to bike races. I mean, it was, it's only been a couple of years since, you know, I think my mom has had even a sense of what it is I do or, you know, yeah. thinks that that's okay. When did you start bike racing? Um, I started bike racing around 13, started riding a lot around then. Uh, it was like about How did you get into that? Event? Well, there, there are two major events. One was the 1984 Olympics that went through Los Angeles um, and all the cycling events there. Uh, I was just a kid back then and then the next year that sparked up. Uh, our family going up to Northern California to watch the Course Classic. So your family um, saw the bike race, and as a family, they enjoyed it. That's right. I mean, yeah. and, and more importantly, like myself, my brother, my cousins, we all got into it. We were also in the Boy Scouts at the time, and you know, there was a, the cycling merit badge, and these bike tours. There was a cycling merit badge. There was a cycling merit badge. How did you badge. get the cycling? What was <laughs> the qualification? You had to that? you had to like change a flat. You had sure. to ride like a hundred miles. You had to. What? You do all these different things sure. to get the cycling merit badge. And what's really kind of funny about it was that getting that cycling merit badge made me uh, quit the scouts and just get into cycling. <laughs> um, but you know, in 1985, I went up to see the Coors Classic and I met uh, this guy, Michael Eisner. Yeah. He was the race promoter. And I yeah. must have only been like 13 years old. And uh, he was so nice to us. Uh, me and my cousins and our whole family and showed us around and the whole bit and we just basically got hooked. Around the same time the movie American Flyers came out sure. and there was that role that Kevin Costner played where he was the sports physician sure. and all of a sudden it hit me that wow you could be a doctor, you could be what is like prototypically Asian in terms yeah, what of what my mom wants me to what do. My mom wants me to do yet still engage in professional cycling. So Kevin Costner did this to you. Yeah, Kevin Costner did this to me. It was the perfect storm of, of Michael Eisner and the Coors Classic, the 1984 Olympics, you know, the, the thing. Kevin Costner almost dies in this. Then you're like, oh, I don't have that brain thing. 
Yeah, exactly. I thought I, it did. I don't think that was a prerequisite. Sure. <laughs> sure. Remember how badass he was as a cyclist, a bike racer? No. It was great. Remember the sprint training? They'd go with the dog. Yeah, the dog. exactly. What was the dog Cujo. Thing? Exactly. No, no, it wasn't Cujo. It was, uh, was it Buddy? Eddie? Eddie. Eddie, Buddy, Eddie. Eddie. It was Eddie. Yeah. Like... yeah. Anyway, so that led into bike racing. By 1989, you know, uh, myself, my cousin, my brother, we were all racing in Europe. And at the 89 Tour de France, we actually got to meet Greg. Where were you racing in Europe? We were racing in France and the Netherlands. Did you have a team or you just Yeah, it was, like, it was like an exchange club program. Huh. Um, so we went out there, we raced, uh, got to meet Greg LeMond, and just like everything kind of wow. spawned from there. Do you so, have yeah. photos from back then? I, I do, yeah. They're, 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 they're pretty funny. They're pretty cool. How long did you spend over there? Just the summer. Yeah, but it was transformative, you know. You take a trip like that when you're 16 years yeah. old. How'd you do? I did pretty well. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, finished all the races, placed a few times. My cousin, John, uh, who was a year younger than me, he basically tore it up. He won a lot of bike races out there. And uh, in a French newspaper, there was an article, you know, is this the next Lim Mon? Right? No way. Yeah, and uh, my cousin John actually went on to win uh, the collegiate national title out of UC Berkeley and, you know, was, was, was definitely the best cyclist in the family. Um, none of us had the kind of talent that he did, but we loved the sport and, you know, yeah, kind of went from there. But you grew up racing too. Were you guys the only Asians over in France at the time? Yeah, for bikes? sure. I mean, even when I went to work there as a physiologist, I was the only Asian. Yeah, you know, working in the in on the pro tour and the pro peloton. So, because even now, when I see like an Indian dude in a kit, I'm like, holy crap, there's an Indian guy in a kit. Yeah, or uh, you know, Asian guy. It's just, it just it's still jarring to see. Yeah. At the same time, though, the the Asian cycling community has been growing over the last decade, especially in California, yeah. um, especially in places like the Philippines and Indonesia and Singapore, um, you know, South Korea, Japan, and it's been really exciting to see and to see that yeah. kind of blossom. Yeah, India's been blowing up. There's two significant clubs locally now in India. One is sponsored by Specialized, the other by Trek. And there's a, I mean, they're doing a big boot camp. You know, first week of December, a bunch of guys that we know are going down there to head up the training camp. Um, and it's pretty trippy to see. Like, here's a part of the world where, I mean, everybody's on a bicycle. Yeah. But there's no, and India's had track racing forever uh, because of British influence from way back in the day. They've got tracks all over India you know, from the 1940s and 50s that still get used. But trying to ride a bike on the road in India is just suicide. It's just no. Sure. There's no. Yeah. And then, so for the longest time, I had this fantasy that I was going to go back and help build the cycling community there on a team. And so I kept my Indian citizenship all these years. So for the longest time, you couldn't have U.S. and Indian citizenship. Oh. And to work in India, doing something on that level, you had to be an Indian citizen. So I kept it all these years, but I tried multiple times to go back and do something, and it's just so corrupt, the whole system of business and how things are handled. And I'm like, okay, I can, I've got a company who wants to give bikes, okay? For each bike, we're going to need $500 cash to, as a payoff. Sure. Like, really, you want us to get free equipment for you and support you and then pay you off, too. Yeah. You know, it's just Crazy. such a corrupt mentality where not, not much moves forward. And all of a sudden, in the last three years, this dude who did, uh, went to design school here in the States, went back, put his own money into starting a club, and their pro Conti team basically racing all over Southeast Asia and doing you know, Asian games, and Specialized jumped in, gave him everything, top to bottom, uh, bikes, shoes, all the supplies they could need. 
Park Tools got involved, Training Peaks is involved, and there's a bunch of companies that it's not because they're going to make money anytime soon, but just, you know, it's cool to see. And then we recently met and rode with a bunch of guys out of Indonesia. And yeah. another crazy thing, like, the sport's exploding globally. And, you know, a lot of it is guys that are our age in their 30s and 40s that just love the sport. And they're doing something different for certain. I mean, especially in countries like India where for the longest time as an adult, once you were married, once you had children, you don't ever play anything again. You're not allowed to just go goof off and play basketball. Or, yeah. You know, you just it's unheard of. It's like people look at you like you're crazy. But all of a sudden, guys that are in their 30s and 40s and successful are, you know, making time to go ride their bikes. They hang out with their buddies. Yeah. And it's a whole cultural mind shift, and that's making it okay for these new companies and endeavors to happen. Where's that cultural mind shift coming from? It's mostly because people being exposed to, you know, coming here to go to school in the West, whether it's here or Great Britain or in Europe, and yeah. seeing how adults, like in the States, you would never think twice about seeing somebody in their 50s or 60s or 70s going for a job or playing yeah. basketball. Well, yeah, I think for sure it's our generation. There was a huge, huge immigration to the States in the 70s. Yeah. Um, you know, from Asia, from places like India, from the Philippines, from China, from everywhere. And I think the, the dream of our parents was that we would become U.S. educated, but go back to the motherland, if you will, and yeah. help grow and, and change the, the economy and the culture there. I mean, that was certainly, I think, a big hope for, for, for my parents. And, you know, a lot of these guys that we meet are guys who were raised in America, who got degrees in the United States, and who have gone back and brought cycling back with them. Right. Yeah. So. It's pretty cool to see, man. There's like, yeah. you know, especially for me as an Indian. I mean, for the longest time, the only uh, Indians that were even remotely relevant in cycling were the whole Graywall family. You know, they were all crushing it back in the day. And then after that, there really wasn't a whole lot to talk about. But then it turns out, yeah, you know, there's tons of riders of every color and every nationality from mm -hmm. Asia that are super active in the sport, in the industry. You know. On uh, on the storytelling side of it, it's crazy to see. It's pretty cool. But you know, I mean, to, to, not to get too philosophical. No, no, go for it. But I think the the bicycle is uh, it's 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 this true expression of freedom, right? And um, you see it in so many different ways in different contexts. Like right now, Shannon Galpin is in Afghanistan. She's a humanitarian that runs a nonprofit called Not in the Mountain, and just this year. A women's cycling team has started in Afghanistan. A women's yeah, national I saw, cycling I saw program, the right? She was doing, yeah. yeah, and it's amazing because you know that expression, in and of itself, is 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 potentially um, could mean more to the, the women's liberation movement in Afghanistan than any other single thing. I mean, for sure, it was what drove women's suffrage here in the United States. The ability to get on a bicycle, to ride this bicycle, and to move you know, far distances and be able to communicate with others. It changed fashion, it changed clothing, it changed politics. The same thing is happening in Afghanistan right now. So for as much, you know, time, effort that we spent to fight terrorism in Afghanistan and, you know, places abroad, it may be something as simple as the bicycle that really begins to mark the real change in that in that region. Um, well, there's something, I mean, that we everybody feels as a kid when they get on the bike for the first time. It's like you get to pick where you go. You yeah. Get to go is you can use it for exercise. You yeah. Feel, you feel good when you get off of it, and you've also explored. There's, there's, That's right. There's, there's it's freedom. Yeah. It's it's total freedom. And I think that you know maybe if it's as simple as people feel, feeling confined in their own lives with with work with their responsibilities and just getting on that bike for one hour every day, uh -huh. and you have just reprieve. You know, it's it's pretty awesome. 
I still don't think women should get equal prize money, though. <laughs> oh. That's a joke. That's a joke. I'm like, you know, I was in Sacramento recently at uh, Wheelworks, and I saw a No, you did not see that photo. Yeah. You did not see that photo, did you? Creed. Probably you were like 11 years old or something. How did you see that photo? How did you know? It's proudly displayed Come on. in their shop. Yeah. Really? Yeah, exactly. That's a, my first club ever. That's amazing. That's the very first club. Yeah, so how did you get into cycling? Uh, I th my dad did it a bit. My dad did it a little bit. And were you guys and, living in Sacramento? Uh, well, we are living in Montana. Okay. And then our school didn't have a bus system. So uh, I had to ride my like BMX bike like five miles to school in Montana. Nice. And then there was a teacher there who raced. Yeah. Who gave me a tape of the 89 Tour de France. Yeah. And then my dad already kind of did it a little bit, but then I was like, oh, yeah. This if, you, if you watched, I think it was stage 10 of that 1989 Tour de France, um, over one of the mountain passes, you'll see me and my cousin Come John on. and my, my brother cheering at the very top of the mountain. Come on, really? Yeah. Yeah. It, it like you're talking about that they had like uh, the one hour coverage where they pretty much wrapped the whole tour de France. That's right, yeah. that's right. And yeah. it's the station that comes out of Yeah, I could probably it would take me one go through, but yeah. I watched the thing, I could probably recite it verbatim. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's how many times I watched it. Yeah. Now I gotta find the gotta little find family. That's right. That's pretty cool. Oh. But uh alright, so you got that. But how did so where did turning like being like a, getting like, all right, I'm not going to race as much. I'm going to get my doctorate. And then you started like coaching other people. That's where I yeah. ran into you. I mean, it was just, that, that transition is pretty like natural, right? Candelario and, yeah. Uh, well, I, when I was, um, I went to UC Davis for my undergraduate. Okay. And um, the bottom line was I just wasn't that good. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of suffering, right? And yeah. it hurts a lot. Um so I kind of knew that, that that wasn't going to turn pro or make a career out of it, but I still loved it, and I, I still was as interested in it as I was anything. And at UC Davis, I had this incredible coach. His name was Dr. Woodbert Tsai. He was also Chinese, also from the Philippines. We spoke, this, we spoke the same dialect of Chinese, which is Fujian. And it's pretty amazing to meet someone who has the exact same cultural background as sure. you. And he was also an Olympian and a cyclist. So Olympian cyclist? Or? He was an Olympian, Olympic swimmer. Okay. Um, and he, you know, also raced bicycles. So he started coaching myself and Shannon Sylvendahl, um, who actually is now the, he's the team doctor for Garmin. Okay. Um, so Shannon and I have known each other for a long time, and we started being coached by WIG. And it was just such a profound experience to have that kind of mentoring and that kind of coaching, especially on that level. He was, you know, a, a doctor. He was a physiologist. He was someone who had a lot of experience. And um, he had this really interesting way of coaching where, you know, um, he would make Shannon and I write out different training programs. And we would meet at his house once a week. And we would go over these different training scenarios and we would talk about which training scenario would work best. You have to like explain your work. You had to show your work. You had to show your work. And then yeah. we would edit together and then we would have a training program for the next week. But it was actually kind of genius. One, because it saved him a lot of time. Right. right. He didn't have to sit down and actually write these programs. Number two, it gave us the responsibility of taking the time to think about our training, which also... Not just blindly. Yeah, yeah. Without, yeah. And it also taught us how to coach and it was 
And that experience of WIG making us write our own training programs when we were in college, that transformed into me having an understanding of, of how to coach and how to teach. Uh, so in 1994, my senior year at UC Davis, I started coaching the women's cycling team there. And um, that year, Davis. Did you volunteer for that? Or did they yeah, come to you? Or? It was a volunteer position. I was on the I was on the club. Um, so you know, and they, what year was this? This was 1994. Um, that that well, 93 to 94, and that 94. We might have been in Davis at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I lived in Davis in 90. 93. Okay, yeah. So we were there at the same time. 93, 94. Guys like Sean Wilson, um, Jeff Angerman. There were a whole cast of characters. Steve Larson out of Davis. A bunch of really great, great guys. Great mentors. Um, But that year, Davis won the collegiate national title. And it was literally like the biggest deal in my life. What was his name? Who? Davis, Davis, so Davis overall won it. Like the Davis, yeah, UC yeah. Davis, the Aggies, the, the team won the overall collegiate national title. Um, so that kind of, um, that solidified it for me. I realized that I was much better at coaching than I was as a cyclist. I then got asked to coach um, at CU Boulder. We had taken the national title away from CU Boulder. Um, which was also a super big thing because sure. at the time Boulder was it. Boulder was it. Boulder was was the dominant uh, school. So I got into graduate school at Boulder and then started coaching the women's team. So like Boulder, Boulder. Like, like headhunted you. They like specifically went after you for that, or they had asked. I I knew that that I wanted to come here and that uh, I'd gotten in. So it was just kind of a perfect yeah perfect melding. And it's not like you get headhunted to coach collegiate yeah that's what I was wondering uh but you know we we I knew I knew I knew the team from from uh working at UC Davis so coming here was like a perfect kind of extension to it you know there wasn't much in collegiate cycling at the time it was just whatever you wanted to put into it but that was really kind of the purest um form of cycling that I've ever been part of, you know, it was... What kind of, like, measurable metrics for coaching were there back then around, like, heart rate monitors and... Yeah, I mean, it was all feel, it was heart rate, it was distance, I mean, we, I think everyone really prescribed at the time to Greg LeMond's, you know, book of training, yeah. and, you know, the, it's the, the... Well, no, the transformation in LeMond's book was, don't worry about distance, worry about time. You know, oh, and that, yeah. yeah, if, 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 I, if, I wasn't, I yeah, if a race is going to take you five hours and train five hours, don't, don't train the hundred miles. Right. And that was kind of the, the big next step. It was, yeah. how do you train off of, uh, volume or time, uh, versus intensity. Um, at the same time, you know, there's this physiologist named Carl Foster, who was really big in skiing. And he came up with this simple index called the Foster's index, which was, you take the total number of minutes that you train and you multiply it by how hard you thought your training was on a scale of 1 to 10. And that essentially equals a work index, like we think of kilojoules today. Sure. And to date, that Foster's index is probably still one of the most consistently reliable measures of training load that anyone can use across any sport, right? Because you just have to know how long you train and how hard you thought it was. And we're done so. Yeah. So that's essentially what we're using back then. We're using, um, you know, time and and feel. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get in the second? Catch you now. 
Look at you now with all your gadgets. Yeah. Beesh, how did you get into cycling? Uh, interesting you should ask. You know, I grew up in uh, uh, Denver and then over high school in Lakewood, Colorado. Uh, this would have been also uh, mid-80s, and there was like, a cycling club at our high school. We had a club. Our English teacher had it up, and he would do an annual ride from Lakewood to Taos, New Mexico with the juniors and seniors. And imagine, this is back in the 80s where you literally took like 20, 15, 16, 17-year-old kids put them on road bikes, and let them ride on 285 from Denver all the way down to Taos, New Mexico. Sure. With a U-Haul following us with all our crap in it. Um, that seemed awesome. And at the same time, we had four kids at CU that were bike racers. And they just had, like, the coolest-looking bikes I'd ever seen. I remember these, uh, these twin brothers had fancy pink uh, treks with Campy Record at the time. And this one kid was sponsored. He was, like, his name was Warren something or other, and he was sponsored, and... They just were, like, too cool to talk to the rest of us. Sure. They would just take off. Right? Yeah, they would just take off. And so I saw that, and a buddy of mine had a, this beautiful green motobacon with leather handlebar grips. It was, like, a stitched-on leather. Yeah. Grips. It was awesome. It had matching saddle. So for me, it was, like, first, was like I fell in love with the, the stuff, the equipment. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, I got to do that. It was just so beautiful and so unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, so I worked... Uh, I was at the time I worked in a kitchen at a nursing home. I was 15 years old, and I worked extra hours that summer. And they, for whatever reason, let me work overtime. I made enough money to go buy my first road bike, which was a Miata 110. Uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, I bought a 58 centimeter frame. I ride a 52 now. <laughs> I ride a 58 then. <laughs> Do they think you're just going to grow into it? No, yeah, I went to the shop. You were going to grow into but it. But back then, everybody rode much larger frames than you needed to. You know, nobody, it was very seldom you saw anybody on tiny frames. And uh, I remember going to the bike shop. It was just me. I'm no parents. My parents were like, what the hell's wrong with you? What, what? They didn't understand what I was doing at all. I went to the bike shop, this old bike shop used to be in Lakewood. I remember pointing at the rack. They had a rolling or rotating rack of bikes. And I said, oh, I want the white one. So I got the white, pearl white Miata 110. 58 centimeter. 58 centimeter. Rode that for. How did they let you walk out? Uh, <laughs> rode that for part of that summer, and then after that, um, I started getting into it more. Um, joined a little club, which was at the time Columbine Cycling Club, here in Denver, and that was run by Len Pettyjohn. And the, wow, really? um, Len gave me my first ever pair of shoes. I still have them. Um, Dweezies that we drilled out the bottoms to put clipless pedals into. Um, and there were a couple other juniors on the team. Um, JV was briefly, he and dad, JV's dad would bring him around, uh, briefly entertaining getting on the team because the senior team was uh, the Crest Toothpaste team and then the Coors Light team. So this was the junior development team. And there was me, uh, Rob Thurston. So yeah. Rob went on to start, or oh, Robin went on to start, Matt My Ride. Um, he and I were juniors. There's like three, four other guys at the time that all kind of went on to some other version of the industry. So this is an 85, 86. And cycling can be a small world. Yeah, it is. I mean, oh, it gets you, I, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It just continues like this in all of us. Yeah, I mean, when I started riding, and I was just just a kid in high school, I was out training with, you know, on my club was the Montrose Cycling Team. Suntour KHS was a sponsor, and it was myself. It was Freddie Rodriguez. It was um, Antonio Cruz, um, Halden Morris, Sean Cronkite. Uh, this whole posse of, of riders, I remember... They just stay, like, they kind of go away for a little bit, then they start something in cycling, they come back. That's right, yeah. You don't hear from them for a couple of years, and they're like, oh, no, he runs a cycling too. Dude, yeah, so that's, for me, juniors here in Denver, that was, like, a handful of local dudes. And then I go to school, Greeley, freshman year, and my first day registering, we're standing in line to register for our rooms. I see another tall skinny dude with, like, shaven legs. I'm like, oh, he's got to be a bike rider. Uh, that's Dirk Friel. 
who then went on to start Training Peaks. And another guy that was lived in my basement uh, dorms with us, uh, a guy we call Beaker, who started the Sock Guy, the, that whole company. And yeah. then he's then saw, I mean, sold that or something, and then he started off another cycling or a compression sock company or something. It was just crazy. Like, there's so yeah. many of us back in the, that time that just loved bikes and loved the idea of it, but none of us ever thought we'd ever make a living doing any of this. You know? yeah. It was just the yeah. one thing we could actually do that we like doing. Yeah, exactly. That's nuts. So you got, so you got a 58 centimeter. No, I got rid of that that summer once I realized that I was actually pretty good at racing and riding. I went. Um, There's some kid here at CU that was on the national team. He had an old Tomasini frame that he wanted to sell. It was like really pretty blue with chrome lugs. And you still have that Tomasini. Oh, I bought the Tomasini and then I bought a Rossini because at the time Rossini is what 10 speed drive. Remember that team out of uh, Kent Bostick and those guys and. They rode these beautiful Racine frames, and I still have mine from high school. So I bought one of those. I told Massini, I put the, I put, bought the first generation uh, seven-speed Durace with the click shifting. Remember the SIS? Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. a big deal. Yeah, when you could finally go click, you yeah. could feel it. Yeah. So I bought the Grupo. I had no tools to put it together. I just banged it together in my basement. Really bad idea. So anyway, that's, I did that. And then at the time, Ron Kiefel's dad put on a... Um, he had a local club called Sunburst Cycling Team and it was all juniors and Columbine was a competing club and uh, Ron's dad put on a bunch of great races and all of us grew up racing in the, in, in the South Denver area so that was it I rode and I don't think I ever really have stopped since then I mean I was never all that good but you know who yeah. cares who cares yeah did you just kind of get out of it for a little bit? And... Yeah, like during uh, late 20s when I started up uh, a couple of businesses and projects and then it just got hard to do it and I've got really bad asthma so for me it's like if I stay off the bike more than a few days in a row then it's like I'm starting over from and it's, right. it's impossible it's like so it gets really easy to stop riding and very very hard to get back but into because it. this is a podcast all the ladies out there you can't see Bijou's legs but oh, Bijou let me tell you glorious. yeah <laughs> he's got maybe some of the most ripped shiny Legs. And he'll let you feel them. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. what I don't understand is my legs are ripped. The rest of me, not so ripped. Now, if I could just, now I'm like, you like Hulk legs? Look at, no, I mean, they're looking at a Michael Creed here who's just all around a ripped man, but yeah. me. I mean, like, don't, don't compare yourself against like the Adonis. You know? <laughs> this is true. Hard. Yeah. No, my leg, I've been bad. blessed with good legs. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I'm hoping, you know, like when you see like really old dudes with awesome legs and just huge bellies. And but here's the thing about having a belly: as long as you're tan, if you're a dude, that's true. You did get away with it. You can pull it off. Totally awesome. But yeah. you yeah. see, like the old belly dudes with the ripped legs, that'll be me. Do you have like a lot of chest hair? No, no. I don't see. Unfortunately, I can't do that. Yeah. You know, I can't. I, I'm very uh, smooth. In the Chester region. <laughs> yeah, another reason players should come up with that. That's right. That's right. Wow. So, uh, Lim, so now you've come, like, now you got this, like, before we get to what's next, like, when you look at, like, all this history that you have now in cycling, like, what, what do you wish you, like, uh, you took in more, like, is there a part where you're like, oh, that was the funnest? Um, I should have appreciated it more. I think I'm trying to relive this part of my, my cycling history, and, and this is actually where you come in, Mike. And it was that time 
called TIAA Crest and Slipstream yeah, right. Sports. Right. And it was all those days at the track with you and Brad Huff and Mike Friedman and Danny Pate, Rasan Bahati, and just the way that you guys would always wrestle and kick each other in the balls all the time, like little yeah. little goofballs. Um, that Tia crap was a, was a one-off, wasn't it? It was a one-off. I mean, it was uh, probably the most fun that I've ever had in cycling because we were all just goofballs. We were all just... You guys had nothing to know, lose back then. It was just like, yeah. just having fun. I thought, what I remember about TFF is feeling like there was that underlying stress of like, okay, things are building. Yeah. But I remember just feeling like, do we, there was like no control or <laughs> checks and balances. It was, it was awesome. Like JB would like come in from on high every now and then freak the fuck out. Yeah. You know, what he would see, but I mean, Dude. how ramshackle that, like, and I mean, not ramshackle in that, it, I mean, it was well-funded, but I mean, ramshackle in that, like, how off the rails it was sometimes. Yeah. In we, a good way. In a good way. I, I think that we, uh, I don't know if we knew it then, but I think we were totally redefining cycling and redefining kind of the culture of being part of a team and that, you know, you spend years trying to find that, that sense of team and, you know, looking back at it now, um, it becomes the model for how I want to build scratch. And maybe that's why I have this kind of affinity for hiring anyone who was ever on that program. Yeah. Right. So if you were on TIA. What was that like right? for you though? Because you work so hard. I, I mean, I still don't know if I've ever seen anyone in cycling work. I mean, you were on the road that year, buddy. Yeah. Alan did everything. Yeah. I like, think it, it was, wasn't like the science guy. He did everything. 270 Alan, d days out of the year. Do you remember Tour Tuna that year? Tour Tuna. This is race. And it was, they do these 100 mile bike races, really great courses. But in order to get the courses, they would have to start the race at like 7.30 or 8 in the morning. Jesus. And they were all, I mean, they were never in town. So like, say we have to drive 30, 40 minutes minimum to get to the race. So you'd have to eat breakfast at like 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah. And Holy shit. Alan would be in his room making like first iterations like eggs, rice, you know, potatoes, everything. Yeah. And you were directing. Like you weren't, it wasn't somebody else driving the car. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think that you're like, this will never happen. I, but it's not going to be a director. Like, I'm a director. Yeah. Now, I am waking up for it. But I, but I think back then, the part of it was um, that I didn't know any better, right? That the model of cycling that I always came from was the do it yourself model, which was uh, collegiate cycling and women's cycling. Right, and so coming from college cycling and coming from women's cycling, where there is no money, there is no extra staff. You take a lot of responsibility to get these things done, and I just didn't know any better coming on to TIA Craft that that wasn't the way to continue to do it. And you know, the other side of it was that it was such a family that I did feel appreciated, you know, for that work, and there was so much spirit. In, in, involved in such a sense of accomplishment. None of us were doing it because we were uh, thinking that we were going to get rich. But, yeah. you know, I think about it now and I do realize, and I've, I've talked to Ian McGregor who was on that program and who yeah. then went on to write for Slipstream, Garmin, you know, um, Kelly, the whole, the whole bit. He's our CEO at Scratch now that when I made him CEO of Scratch, I basically sat down and said to him, look, you know, I am never going to be able to work as hard as you're going to be able to work over the next decade because... Yeah. On some level, I gave that that away yeah. know, when 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 we were starting these programs. 
That kind of energy is like finite. It's yeah. finite. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. It's finite. Um, you know, so there, there are definitely lessons there, you know, in, in terms of, of, of how you spend it. But uh, no regrets. I mean, it, it's, I think it's created everything that, that we have now. And I think that, you know, it created a, a real positive movement within within cycling, especially American they cycling culture. They say it created. You just mean like learning how to work that hard or just... Yeah, and, 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 and seeing that it had some sort of impact or result. I think that outside looking in, you could just say that all the pieces were aligned, that there was going to be success. But I don't think that that's true. I think that that success really came from all of the work that we all put in, not just myself, but all of the riders, the rest of that staff, JV. I mean, everyone worked their ass off, and it didn't happen by accident. You know, yeah. that, that, that segment of uh, American cycling, cycling in America as a whole. I mean, you look at how hard uh, race promoters work. You look at how hard everyone in the industry works, and... It parallels kind of the acceptance that you suffer in the sport, right? And that we all, we all, we are, we're all okay with that, you know. So but it was crazy in the early days too. If you think like, there's so many clubs and teams that try to start up, and you know, a big chunk of the time of the organizers is spent raising money and you know trying to get money to fund the thing and fund the thing. If I remember, like JV one got his real estate license and yeah. was, or, you know, he was funding it off the commissions. He was, yeah, he yeah, was. He exactly. did that purely so he could fund his own team. For whatever comes of it, I mean, he did it and got you know Doug Price and Dan and other local guys together to help build this thing. Like purely, like yeah. you know, there's nothing driving him beyond he just wanted to do something totally different. Yeah, it's pretty badass when you think back to those days. You know, yeah. like JV came out of you know tail end of his career and he went. I mean, what does he do? Go get real estate license. Ah, this made sense. I'm not going to go ask him for money. I'm going to just do it myself. Yeah, yeah, well, and, the, and the great lesson there is nobody nobody got lucky. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Do you remember just like how wickedly hard, like, like we would be in Silver City for like two or three weeks, and then we would go to like LA, yeah, do those track camps. I remember you falling. Alan would follow us every day, even though it'd be like a group of four of us. It'd only be four of us, and he'd still follow us. We would tell him like, you know, you don't need to drive sag today. I remember one time you just fell asleep at the wheel behind us. Did I run you over? No, you just like. You like you ran into the shoulder. You came back up, and then you drove up next to you. You're like guys, I have to lay down for a little bit. Yeah, I took a nap probably. Like, yeah. You know, I think it was in Silver City though that you probably taught me one of the most important lessons that I've ever learned in professional cycling. And I don't know if you Man, remember one of the many lessons. Yeah, one of the many lessons <laughs> Mike Creed has taught me personally. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to relay this to the public because yeah. this was a seminal moment. Um, we were out in Silver City, New Mexico. We're in between all these track camps. It's Myself, it's Mike Creed, it's Brad Huff, it's um, Mike Friedman, it's Rasan Bahati, and you know the idea is just to beat the shit out of these guys, right? Yeah. And really, I think that uh, JV's main motivation was this was really Rasan because he saw so much potential and so much promise in him. This had to be like a four and a half going on five hour day, and we're maybe about three. Those minutes. are before my back started getting bad days. So those are when I yeah. could ride at like three hundred watts. That's right. Hour. That's when you were just the meanest, surliest dude. Yeah, out there and you were yeah mike was a dick he was a punisher he 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 didn't have any kind of remorse for anybody else's suffering still um, to some extent yeah <laughs> yeah that's okay yeah but on this particular day we're about 30 minutes um out from getting home and Rasan is just falling apart i remember it was the last day yeah he was just he was coming unglued like i've never seen anyone come unglued finally comes a point where he just pulls over the side of the road and 
He's he's slumped over his bicycle. You know, he looks like he's he's, he's just losing it. Um, and as I come out of the car, Mike pulls right up to him. And at this moment that Mike pulls up to him, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, shit. Like, Mike is about to unleash a series of whoop-ass, and I don't even want to be around he's here. He's going to something racist, yeah, he's, this he, will be inappropriate. Yeah, this will, this will be the end of all of us. This will be the end of her song. <laughs> and um, yeah. and, as I, and as I get up, I hear Mike say to Rasan, he says to him, hey, man, I know this hurts. I know you want to stop. But this is the only way. Yeah, this yeah. is the only way. Yeah. And after he said that, Rasan clicks back in. He gets back on his bike and he makes it home. And that notion that that you do have to well, push we, yourself we past like, failure. Yeah, we were just at that point. Like, this is it. Like, yeah. this last half an hour is where. Like, I think once you lose that as a professional, like, and I realized, like, the like last year or this year, I lost that. So like, that's when I had to pull the trigger because you get to that point where you're like okay, like, it, it makes more sense to stop. Yeah. But, no. Like, yeah. You know, like, you get to that point in the time trial where you're like, okay, this, right now, this is what I'm feeling, this is where the seconds are going to come into play. Yeah. Like, you can totally let yourself yeah. off the hook and not feel any guilt right now. Yeah. yeah. But, if you don't, what fucking happens? Yeah. And you just... Uh, you have to just fall apart a couple times. You like do. That. You have to. You have That's to... what I loved about Silver City, though, is that you could just, you could just make yourself die a million times out there. Yeah. I know, like the riders hate it, but yeah. I mean, I'm directing Smart Stop now, and I'm already planning. Yeah. Just... Which, which comes to another epic Silver City moment, another yeah. like phenomenal memory that I have, and it was in the uh, tour of Gila, and. You know, I think it was like, you know, the inner loop or something, some stage like this. And there's this road that comes out of Silver City. And Mike had this amazing idea that day. Why don't we just attack the shit out of him right off the line? Oh, yeah, that right? was great. I and yeah. um, it was the... the well, because we all were... There was a group of, like, really good guys. There's Lucas, Tom Peterson, yep. myself, Francois Parisian, yeah. Alex Howes. Yeah. Like, all these guys who we were expecting one of us to get on the podium overall... And the day before, we all kind of bombed. Yeah. We all, I think, like, we all finished in the 20s. Yeah. And we yeah. were all really disappointed. Yeah. And from training in Silver City, I knew this climb to Pinos Altos was yep. most of the time crosswind. And I just said, fuck it. Like, we have five good climbers here. Yeah. Between the five of us. Yeah. If awesome. we go as hard as we can. Yeah. All of you. What, what but it was the single most unified team effort that, that I've ever seen in professional cycling. Where everyone was on board yeah. everybody was on board and i remember coming through the car and i made that little movie for you guys of everyone blowing up from behind yeah, yeah. And it was like all five of you just like drilling it you all made the breakaway and that was the end of the race you know what's was great it. about that data so like we get it down to whatever 10 15 guys and then peterson attacks right yeah and it was peterson and like maybe three or four other guys and uh Peterson was pulling so hard in this break that uh, he flatted with a mile to go. Do you remember this? Oh, that's right. He flatted with a that's mile right. to go. That's right. He wanted the flat tire. And he was pulling so hard in this break. The other guys couldn't pull through. I don't know for how long. But for, <laughs> for long enough that when he flatted with a mile to go, three guys said, you know what, dude, just keep going. Like, Because the pack was coming. Yeah. So it's like, just keep going. We're not going to sprint you. 
Like, that maybe happens with one guy. Yeah. One guy's like, look, I've been sitting on so long, you take the stage. But for three other guys to say, dude, we're not going to sprint. Yeah. Like, that's, right. that's how fucking hard Tom Peterson wow. was. Yeah, I think that was one of his first pro wins. That was the first time you actually had to do an interview. Yeah. I remember, too, like, because he, he was... Tom's a smart guy, but in some ways, he's not a smart guy. So... I remember we asked him, like, dude, how did you beat him in the sprint? And he didn't get that they let him win. He goes, I don't know. I, I mean, I had a flat, and I was just pedaling. They didn't come around me. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's awesome. Like, That's awesome. And then you had to talk to, like, Stavagopi. was like, what happened? He's like, dude, we weren't. He pulled for 20 miles. Yes. We weren't going to. I yeah. wasn't going to come around him. That is awesome. So now you're entering this directing position, Mike. I mean, what do you think? What do you, what do you aspire to? <sighs> I don't know, man. Like, it's, uh, I think what makes people, you know, like, I, I bring you up as an example a lot. Like, everybody says, like, oh, who's one of the best coaches in the world? Like, I don't know who's one of the best coaches in the world. And it's also, I mean, there's obvious, the obvious of that you have an, a knowledge base to work from. But yeah. I think what goes beyond the knowledge base is your ability to spend time, or your, your not your ability, because you're really busy, but how about your, your willingness to sacrifice your own time to motor pace people for a week. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that you. is the kind of hands-on detail that will always separate you. And I think I'm trying to bring that into directing. And can I say something like, as somebody who's witnessed this multiple times with different riders and teams, you can tell on a team when there's nobody there who gives a shit. But then when, even from, you know, the Swaniers to the mechanic to every single person, the whole attitude changes when there's a coach or a director who's willing to spend more time than they have to with the little details and the bullshit that they don't have to do. Everybody lifts their game, and the riders yeah. ride differently. Like, you, you know, go work around Alan when he's working with the team. It's like, holy shit, everyone's like, steps it up. Because they know there's no room to just do barely what you have to do and then fuck off the rest of the day. Yeah, we're not like... Getting the minimum done. And yeah. Feet up. And then the riders feel that too. I mean, the riders have to step it up. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that, guys. I mean, thanks, thanks for that compliment because I think that for me, it's always been, all right. Well, if you're not willing to do the work, how can you expect anyone else to do the work? Exactly. And not that you want to be kind of the the team masochist or or brutalize yourself because there's probably too much of that in professional cycling. But even when we were starting this business, Bijou and I were rolling around in this food truck together, and you know, he was the only guy cooking in the kitchen, and I was like literally, like you know, serving the food and cleaning <laughs> yeah. up and doing the dishes. And I think that even people who are our customers realize, okay, look, if these guys, you know, are willing to work this hard, yeah, then you know, this this matters. This matters to them. It matters to us. And you know, hopefully I think we get to like thing. a point with, like you see, like so many of you, like with the jobs that are going away and yeah. everything, like. The only thing that really can put you over today is hustle. Like, yeah. Yeah. if you're willing to scrap and hustle, yeah. like you can get a lot of places. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I think that that here's the other side of it is that you know in professional cycling and maybe in business as a whole, we start to feel entitled and we start to expect. Uh, yeah, a that's lot. when you lose your hustle. That's when you lose your hustle. But then that's also what I find when you lose your sense of happiness. And you don't realize that what you do is actually what you love to do and what you enjoy to do. And so when you actually are in that moment where you're not concerned about how you're doing compared to somebody else or whether or not people deem you as successful or not successful, and you're just in that moment of working your ass off, 
that's when you feel the happiest and that's when the success comes. It's not that you succeed and become happy, it's that you're happy and then you succeed, right? And I think that that's something that Bijou and I have talked a lot about is that we just like being busy. Yeah, yeah. No, you yeah. get a certain charge from, you get a certain charge from throwing all these balls up in the air and then figuring out how you're going to like pull it off. Yeah. Anyway, how cool is it just being productive and doing your thing, you know, versus the times you're And just like, saying, like, and especially with Alan, yeah. I, mean, I don't know so much to do, but I've noticed Alan, Alan, like, the amount of times that somebody said about Alan, like, I don't know, he might have too many irons in the fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but there's, there's a certain amount of, like, there's a charge to just blindly saying yes to things. Yeah. Like, yeah. Powers will ask, like, hey, can you come out and help with Behind the Barriers? Before you even acknowledge your calendar, you're like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go out. Yeah. And then you just do it, and then you kind of like, oh, I don't know how. <laughs> but it's yeah. good. It's good. I mean, you gotta, you know, these are all opportunities, right? Yeah. yeah even though but they work, it, they're opportunities. It's hard with being a director, though, because even with Alberta, whereas like when I was a racer, like I've been racing so long, I just knew things, like, yeah. it, and they they weren't things that you necessarily would you could teach you because you would they came so basic. Yeah. So. I mean, I knew where to be for Candelario all the time. Yeah. And like, where I, I could physically push Candelario over a climb. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. that kind of helped. Where, like, we're in the middle of the group, the commissaire can't see it. I'm going to shove him over the top of this climb. Yeah. That's And awesome. now, and you get like this immense, like, yeah. You know, like, I'm carrying his water bottles up this climb. Yeah. I, I know when the crosswind's coming up, he didn't have to, like, you get this, like, Reward. It's critical. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh look, this is a unique skill that only I have. Yeah. That uh, separates you. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you're a director, especially especially the way I would see you tuck him in at night. And the, oh yeah. And like, oh. In the forehead. And yeah. The oh, yeah. 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 Like, oh. I so know how to be next to him, so like I get on all fours in case he needs an ottoman. Yeah. Just to put his feet up. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't really do that as a director. As a director, you're just in the car, and yeah. you just like um, there was this moment at Alberta this year where um, there was this crosswind coming up and it was everybody knew about it and was, I gave the team meeting and I said okay at 19 kilometers there's a right hand turn and I'm not going to bother with the rest of the meeting I want you to treat like 19 kilometers as a finish and from that point on the race you'll figure the fucking race out but yeah. 19 <laughs> kilometers is the finish line yeah yeah oh, and God. and uh, the guys didn't make the, the group they didn't make the group uh. And you you have this like you feel so useless in that moment. You're just like yeah, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, and yeah. you're like you can't help them. Yeah. You can't help anyone. And like, how am I? I guess it, maybe you're feeding too much into your own ego, and like that's maybe the lesson I should learn. But at what point do you think like, oh well, there's only so much you can do, and you should be okay with that. Like, yeah, well, I, you know. I, I don't know, I and mean, that's always really hard. It's always hard to dissociate from the writer's performance that you work with. And for me, that was something that um, I kind of intentionally had to, to, to make a point of. I had to make it a point that I couldn't grade myself or even the writers based upon the, sure. the, the net result. And, you know, um, there's enough kind of harshness in the sport that as a director, if you almost take the approach that you're going to be there to actually nurture them, well then, you're gonna have your, your hard days, but you're gonna also have your good days, and you just kinda of have to go with the punches, you know? Um, maybe that's also where the rice cakes came in, because it was at least some incentive to be like, right. 
do you need a rice cake? Gave me something to do. You know, all else was hitting. All else was hitting the fan. It's like, all right, I'll give you a rice cake. You know? Yeah, but I mean, you know what's funny is I. I, you know, when as a rider you would bomb races, and you would notice how like some of your directors couldn't even like make eye contact with you. Yeah. And you always, as a rider, you always thought like, man, that's fucked up. Like, yeah. you can't even look at me. Yeah. And then at Alberta, I like I immediately noticed me doing it. Like a rider <laughs> would just yeah. completely bomb. And then he was trying to like look into my eyes to feel me out, and I was like, dude, I like I would just look at my shoes. Like, yeah. You if know, I look at you in the eyes, you're gonna see nothing but disappointment, and I'm gonna feel like an asshole, and you're gonna feel bad about yourself. So let me just pretend like I'm looking at my shoes. Yeah. And I, I think I think away. I think I think the key for me in those moments was to acknowledge that it was a shitty day, yeah. and to at least um, make some note of it, because everybody knew. So you might as well acknowledge, yeah, shitty day. You know, you fuck that part up, but there's tomorrow. You know, sure. that like, let's not make that mistake again, or two tears in a bucket, motherfucker, or whatever, whatever. I've it never is. Heard. Yeah, that's so many of these lines. Like, I have so many of those. I'm not sure that one's any good. I don't want to retire that one. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, my my latest favorite one is this whole sentiment, especially since. So many of the riders that I, I used to coach now are are retiring, you yeah. know, and it's this sentiment that like, look, you got to believe that what you do outside of the sport is going to be better and bigger than what you ever did in the sport, yeah. you know. So it's kind of acknowledgement that those results. Are I don't know. Happen. That's funny you say it because Pat McCarty and I had this conversation. Yeah. Where it's almost exactly the opposite of that. Where we said, giving up cycling, you have. It's, it's funny because it's exactly the opposite of what you just said. Like, we have to acknowledge that we won't be as good at anything for the rest of our life as if we were in bike racing. Yeah. No that matter, doesn't have to be the case. It doesn't have to be, but there's a good chance. And, and I'm not, and that's not like something to be mourned. It's something no. just to be acknowledged. That like, well, on the whole, in any other skill I have, you know, like, sure, I was. If you take the whole world sure, as a big world race, yeah. the best thing I would ever be would be bike race. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll, I'll put it a couple of ways. One, it's the one thing that you practice the most. Yeah. Right. So, so far, yeah. So far. Yeah. Um, two, however, just like like whatever your belief system was that drove you within cycling, if you don't believe that what you're going to do next is going to be better, then it's all going to become the self-fulfilled prophecy of just like, just. Hate life. But on the other side, like cycling, racing seemed like an easy talent to define and pursue. Whereas now you're like everything's wide open, everything's an option, which means nothing's an option. Yeah. You're like so, looking at a great big sea, you know. Yeah, and that, that possibility can be can be paralyzing at times. But at the same time, I'll give you this sentiment: is that everything else that you do is going to be easier. Yeah, you're never going to work that hard again. I mean, like, you're going to have to work that hard no, no. to finish your race. I've brought that up on the podcast a couple of times. I've noticed with just those couple side projects that I'm doing. Yeah. With as much mental energy and physical energy that we're used to putting into being a professional athlete, or, like, with cycling, you can outwork the fuck out of <laughs> Yeah. You can, yeah. And, and here's the thing, Mike. You speak English. Yeah. Eh? Right? From See? birth, too. From what? birth. You I'm speak... even better than you guys. That's yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. You've sprecken the English longer than we have. I got like three years on you guys. Oh, crap. <laughs> Dude, that is awesome. Yeah. What is Pat going to do next? Let's talk about Pat. 
Let's pat him out. Like maybe then he'll like hear about himself on the podcast. Yeah, and Pat, let's start a. Hey, Pat, we're talking about you. Let's first off, barbecue drinks too much. Oh, come with on, the drinking. Yeah. Come on. I figured you would have figured this out by now. I just wish you would just settle down. You know, <laughs> yeah. find, find a nice girl. Yeah. Maybe move to Colorado. You know, there's like yeah. fantastic tracts of land north of Boulder. Maybe just. I mean, somewhere in the Fort Collins area. Yeah, Fort Collins even. It's beautiful up there. Yeah. Pat, come out to some events with us. Oh. Let's, let's start a smoker and let's smoke <laughs> some barbecue. Have you ever seen Pat's diet? <laughs> For as skinny as he is, it makes you wonder how skinny he could be if he ate good. Uh, He's fucking ridiculous. Pat. Uh, Pat is... He's not sure what he's... I talked to him yesterday. Yeah. yeah. He had some weird, mysterious bug that he's trying to kick. Oh, no. For a few months. Um, oh, really? A few months? Yeah. So he's been getting all these blood tests and stool tests and nothing's coming back. That's oh. awesome. So. Sorry, Pat. Call us anytime. We love you, Pat. Come over, man. I'll make you dinner. If you need scratch, they're gonna give you like twenty percent off. <laughs> <laughs> we have a, a new a new diarrhea kicker. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is that the salty salty stuff? It's pretty salty, yeah. It's delicious though. I didn't know that uh, you guys were making the salty salty stuff. Yeah. So I was hanging out with Power at one of the cross races, and I would like rip open one of the scratch <laughs> shooters, and I would just eat it like a pixie stick. Oh no, you got the salty one's salty. delicious. But, uh, it's too salty for the, the pixie stick move. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. So you learned, but now you know. Yeah. So that is that. So that's what we're gonna plan for Pat. Yeah. Get, get him off the sofa. We're gonna get, get him it. off the alcohol. We're gonna cure his diarrhea. How, you want to see how many slipstream guys you could hire at scratch? Would that be like? <laughs> that's actually kind of a big goal of mine. I mean, just eventually have like a whole retirement home. Full <laughs> that's of right. That's <laughs> right. And, and so far, so good. You know, we have Ian McGregor. We have Jason Donald. Um, you know, Meatball is one of our biggest proponents of yeah. getting product out there early on. We have, we have Craig Lewis on board now. He has all of our, our kind of hospitality and 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 you know. Wine, food, that sort of stuff. Thinking about hiring Craig Lewis. He's on the he's on the short list of last guys. I don't know. Have you seen his resume though? Yes, yeah. Shit. Yeah, exactly. Come on, <laughs> Craig Lewis is the toughest guy in professional cycling. I think. You know. Yeah, but he's like so nice, and he has that like that voice. <laughs> has that voice it just makes you feel like, oh, you're fucking act. Just a hair away from cracking at any moment. Oh, psychopath. <laughs> no <laughs> one's that nice. Yeah. He's just like, he has like a, like in his basement, he just has like puppies that he goes around and just belittles and kicks. Oh, puppies. He's the nicest, he's the nicest, Craig, you are the nicest person ever. Fantastic listens to this. Bottom you know what's line. funny? I could get, uh. Maybe we can name drop everybody and then tell yeah. them all to listen. Yeah. Thanks for all the hard work. It's funny about like, because I've been trying to get you on the podcast for like two months now, That's two or right. three months. That's right. I've noticed that people that I don't like consider that I'm close friends with, uh, more than apt to get on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Like these guys, <laughs> who, like, these guys who I surfacely know. I'm like, hey, you want to? Yeah, no, it's no problem. Whatever. Uh, you hooked up the Andy Hampson thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. Andy Hampson's like, yeah, come on over. We'll do a podcast. Yeah. Uh, I asked Alan. I asked Jonas. I asked Pate. All these guys are like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All my friends are like not the type of people <laughs> who listen to or want to be on podcasts. Well, that's because we want a different sort of relationship with them, <laughs> right? We want one that doesn't have any restrictions or, you know, we, no we, we, we just we, we just want it to be there about, is, about people's I've, 
I will say Modders was the first one to do a podcast. So oh, I'll okay. give him credit for that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I do this big podcast with Modders, and then he's like, you know, because it's the first, and I'm sure he's he's pretty media aware. He uh, he's like, well, you know, I I assure him that we can edit things. Yeah. <laughs> I assure him that we can edit things, and then we we bring you up, and he's like, you could tell that he's still like, there's still some unresolved things there. And then uh, he talked about some other things that like about like women's racing or like some stuff that I was surprised he talked about. Yeah. And then I wake up the next day to like, hey man, we're gonna have to edit that podcast. Oh, I, was no. like, I was like, oh, all right, what part? And he's like, the Allen bit. Oh no. And I was like, dude, that's twenty minutes. And he's like, yeah, never mind. So we just left the Allen. Really? Yeah. It was a. Uh, I'll say this, it's funny having two friends who you could see, like, work so hard together and then necessarily don't get along anymore. And you could see that, like, there's, that they should still be friends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's not like either of them have anything really negative to say about the other, it's just... No, I think, like, yeah, cause I that think year was so hard. That, was, so that year hard. was run so hot. Like, so game on. Yeah. And I think when everybody's that tired and things are building, yeah, I think like the the intensity level gets ratcheted to an all time high. Yeah, and I think that you know we talked about this earlier. You know, I don't think I could ever work that hard again. Yeah. Right. And I knew that I was at my my limit at my capacity. Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time, though, I have nothing but love for JV and for the program and for yeah. everything that happened there. I mean, there were some of the most um, kind of important important parts of my whole entire career. They're the biggest learning moments of my career as well in terms of really kind of seeing things that, that, that could work at the highest level. I mean, not to discount anything that I ever did on the collegiate or the women's or the, the development side of things, but, you know... At that time, when I would bring up kind of a novel idea, nobody really cared about it, right? Nobody, nobody acknowledged that that it was, it was something that was was worth worth anything. Um, I think by the time I got to Garmin, and we did a lot. Mostly, people thought it was crazy, but they paid attention to it, you know. Yeah. And it, and it got people, it got people. I hope thinking about the sport a little differently, whether. It, is, you know, you did the whole like marginal gains thing before Sky. Well, I think that's coined that term. I think that's what I think that's that's how we initially thought of it, but it changed rapidly. I think that both JV and I kind of acknowledged that we had to get all the details right, and that it was all these little details that compounded on top of one another that made the result work or not work, and that that to be competitive in that environment. You had to have all these extra marginal gains stacked up on top of one another. But what shifted, and what I don't think a lot of people realize, is that what we saw was that it wasn't about marginal gains as much as it was about rate limiting factors or bottlenecks. Marginal gains don't matter if you still have a big bottleneck you know, standing in your way. And for the most part, the big three bottlenecks in cycling still come down to training, still come down to sleep and recovery, still come down to nutrition. And so when we started doing things like, you know, bringing on uh, chefs to, to, to cook for the team and, you know, transforming the whole entire diet to a real food, 
you know, um, based type of practice, and the guys started to improve, that wasn't a marginal gain. That was a bottleneck. When we started just telling guys to sleep more and to not be dependent upon, you know, sleeping pills or other ways to, to get rest, uh, there was a huge import, improvement when we started doing training camps where we did follow guys all the time so that they could actually get proper nutrition, get proper hydration, have you know, all the motivation they needed and knew that they could take themselves to the edge because they could get back in the car at any point in time, that's when training stepped up a whole other notch. You yeah. know? Um, so for me, the, you know, the, the time and the effort wasn't about marginal gains as much as it was about bottlenecks, but those bottlenecks to you know, make them wider require a lot of just human effort. Yeah. Right? On everybody's part, it's effort on the swaneers' part, it's effort on the director's part, it's effort on the athlete's part. Yeah, the team's got to have the, the monetary resources to pay for those efforts. That's right, exactly. Either that or you got to be crazy and just out there doing it because you want to do it, you yeah. know. Um, and that was certainly the case, you know, with like TIA craft and collegiate cycling and women's cycling. Um, yeah. By the time you get to the pros, you start to look around and you say to yourself, holy cow, you know, why am I working my ass off? And all these other guys be, sitting around yeah. the room are getting paid three times as much as I, I am, and yeah. they're not. Yeah. You know? yeah. I know it's like a big, like, uh, I know his like name is like taboo to even say now, but when you had like a team like Tia Craft, right, and you do all these things that are considered like crazy, like, remember when like at Tour Utah you had us driving with like roasted potatoes in our back pocket. That's right, yeah. You know, stuff like, where we're getting laughed at, and you're doing this to where like Lance Armstrong cherry picks you. Yeah. Like so, this guy who represents something else at that, like in the mentality of people, like now he's signed off on these small things, like whatever that guy's history is now, like that still had to feel like incredible to think like, oh, this guy is signing off on marginal, like really weird ideas that I I'm coming up with, like yeah, I, yeah, it's certainly a validation, uh, but it was also. Um, I never thought of them as, as as big ideas or unusual because a lot of the times these ideas just were very, very commonsensical, very, very simple, and in many ways non-scientific as much as they were based in science. So you think about a potato, a potato is just a potato. It's just carbohydrate, it's got a good moisture content, you can load it up with salt, it tastes great, it's easy to eat, it comes in its own package. You know, you think about it rationally and you're like, this is completely logical. Yeah. And yet, you know, when we're at races and the first time that, you know, I was boiling potatoes for you guys and people would laugh, you know, you just kind of say, all right, well, yeah. that's just the way it is, whatever, who cares? Like, when we're racing in Philadelphia with rice in our pockets and people were laughing and then just flash forward a year later, people are like, hey, do you guys have any extra? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty it's funny. It's, yeah. it's pretty funny. Um, but, you know, that, that was also kind of... Um, Maybe more than anything, it was a it, it was a mechanism to make you guys feel special as well, to yeah. make you feel different. And one thing that I kind of knew about that crowd, I knew about your personality, the personality of all those kids on the team, was that having ways for us to be weird and different actually was really unifying for the yeah, yeah. entire program. You know? It was like we had a secret weapon. Yeah, exactly. You exactly. like feeling like you have this like this plan is day. It's plain as day, but it's also like a secret. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh no, this is great. Like we're we're gonna have rice. <laughs> I know, I know. And 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 how special you feel with an effort 
it really kind of amounts to the effort that goes into that, right? So as much of a pain in the ass as it was to cook in our hotel rooms at most of these events, I always knew that when I did that and other teams saw that, they felt deprived. Yeah. They felt like, oh shit, we don't have that. And psychologically, maybe it only helped you guys a little bit, but it hurt everyone else a lot. Yeah. Right. And that was, I think, as important to the psychology of competition and racing as as anything. And, you know, you you try to create that grass is greener, um, you know, sense, even though the grass isn't greener, you're all yeah. suffering in the same race and yeah. doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, um, you want to feel catered to it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I have one last question. Yeah. Make you explain of all the crazy limb ideas. There's one that you have to tell me is complete bullshit or not. I still think about this one. Sure. We were doing. You wrote these training plans for Peyton and I one time where we would do, uh, like maybe a 30 second sprint. Yeah. And then for the last 10 seconds we'd hold, hold our breath. breath. Yeah, totally. Tell me how much. What? I I, I really think that that is. is <laughs> you still is, stand is, by. I it? stand by it. You know, there's this um, there's this phenomena in uh, elite endurance athletes, and it's called exercise-induced desaturation. The basic gist of it is that your lungs are the rate-limiting factor, not your muscles or your, your heart, that your heart can deliver more oxygen and your legs can use more oxygen than your lungs can actually supply. And so in normal individuals, when you look at the content of oxygen in the, in the bloodstream, it never falls below like 95%. Oxygen saturation. The oxygen saturation always stays high because muscle and heart can't deliver or use oxygen um, at a rate that outcompetes the lung. The lung is is not the bottleneck. The lung is the strongest organ. But in elite endurance athletes, you guys hone everything else to such an extent, and the uh, the lung doesn't adapt much to the stress of exercise. You don't build more capillary beds in the lung. You don't get more alveoli. You can't increase the volume of the lung. You max out your, your ventilation rate. And so at some point, you go past that. So what happens is the content of oxygen actually begins to fall, right? Now, when the content of oxygen falls low enough that your brain is deprived of oxygen, your body goes, oh shit, and you quit. And one thing that's really interesting is whenever you do these graded exercise stress tests, every time someone quits and you ask them how they did or how they felt about the effort, they always say the same fucking thing. They always say, oh, I could have gotten another minute. Oh, I could have, oh, I should have, ah. Yeah. And they start to berate themselves about the fact that they didn't push through that 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 that, that moment. Um, but that moment, if you look at brain oxygen saturation, is always a moment where their cerebral oxygen saturation falls off. So this brings us to breath hold. This brings us to what are the mechanisms that can cause an adaptation where you can allow the oxygen saturation in the external part of the body in the periphery to fall while still maintaining cerebral oxygen so that your brain at least thinks that it's well oxygenated. One of the only things that has been shown to cause that adaptation is breath holding, right? So you have these like Japanese pearl divers who can go like, you know, feet under the water, holding their breath for these long periods of time. They're able to maintain cerebral oxygenation. At the same time, the rest of their body is desaturating, their oxygen levels are falling. Um, and so there's this idea in training, and this was an idea that was initially started by Mark Spitz way back in the day in swimming, which were these breath hold swim intervals, 
right? This whole idea of teaching yourself to do a maximal effort, then desaturate yourself to such an extent that your only adaptation was to figure a way to keep your brain going, to still be cognitive of what you're doing, right? So here's the thing is that we can't stop cerebral desaturation and a normal guy who's an elite pro is falling from 95% to 85%, you know, before they quit. What can we do to actually have them fall from 85% to 70% or even 65% before they quit, right? And so that was the purpose behind these intervals. I still think that they have a lot of merit, but they're so freaking hard to do. And the only reason why I think that they have merit is that some individuals who are really good about their training, like a Timmy Duden, he improved, you know, and he committed to to these strategies. And I, I knew that it wouldn't work if guys couldn't actually adapt to it, if they couldn't actually... push through through and begin to hold their breath longer during these intervals and actually desaturate to a greater extent, right? And, you know, I know this is just a small line of one because Timmy was really the only guy who ever committed to this stuff. (laughs) I think Kate and I started laughing. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, But it's the kind of of stuff where, as good as it is in theory, if if you don't commit to it, it's never going to manifest and we're never going to know. And maybe to this day... I still don't know if it's a good idea or a bad idea because, you know, the majority of the guys kind of just laughed it off and didn't do it. You know, but, people out there doing it now and blacking out on yeah, training you're rides. So good. Like, yeah, this don't podcast do it. is getting sued. There's through. no evidence. There's yeah. no evidence. <laughs> don't do it. All theory. Just close your eyes too while you're at it. All theory. I heard if you close your eyes, ride the oncoming traffic. Close your eyes at the last, you know, 100 yards of a sprint. Yeah. But this would be, you know, some form of hypoxic training. Who knows? I don't know. Well, thanks for doing the podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming up. Thanks, Mike. It was awesome.